when I introduced this idea of a shopping tracker, they don't have one. I was like, well, you should definitely do that, right? And then you can show your boss and people, you don't have to create this from a dead stop. I have one with all the, the features of ours and of even some competitors are on there. So you don't have to, you know, reinvent the wheel. You can just take mine and, and make any adjustments that you need or want. And guess how that works out for me about 95% of the time. You win that. Wow, that's brilliant. Everyone is a leader. Every single person should be a leader. From the lowliest member of your team to the highest CEO. If you're part of a family, every person that's of age should lead something in a family. Not all the time, not necessarily all together, but at the right time for the right thing. Everyone is a leader. Now, if you're a leader, joy is your main tool, or it should be. Today, it's often not. We're gonna to talk to a guest that tells us a little bit about threats and firings and things like that, but puts us at ease that we can do better and create a better environment by how we lead when we lead. You know, studies have confirmed over and over, for decades, Harvard, brightest minds, we think, Nobel laureates, brightest minds, study life to death and say, if you put money first as your target, as your goal, you will get less joy. But if you put joy first, especially for others, the byproduct of money will come and over time be larger. Even in my own studies of the most taking people we assume, in the very biggest companies, you find leaders at the top bringing joy to others to get the byproduct of money. And that's how they've been there for 35 years and risen in the ranks. Amy Rahovchak is an expert at joy in the workplace. She even focuses in the very difficult audience of sales. She's a sales expert. She's been there, she's done it. She's been a highly successful salesperson and sales leader. Best of all, she's the host of Revenue Real Hotline, a terrific show. She is an expert at turning challenging conversations into productive, meaningful, lucrative conversations. And we're going to talk about how we bring the team along to pursue the bullseye. Because as humans, our greatest characteristic, also scientifically back, is that we're flexibly cooperative as long as we all lead and bring each other joy. In a moment, I bring you Amy Rahovchak, sales expert, host of Revenue Real Hotline. Welcome to Bold Breakthroughs that unstick work and life. I'm Mark Cook, New York Times bestselling innovator. Each week I offer keynotes that engage thousands, and teams embed me weekly to unstick tech pivots, sales prospects, and ops constraints. We roll up our sleeves in small groups to create breakthroughs on top priorities for each individual, in person or via Zoom. Nine global studies of over two million successes fueled my 4,000 wins at top brands. I've shared rapid innovation in over 50 cities worldwide. Teams create revenue breakthroughs and clients see new profits. Thank you for listening and inspiring your breakthrough today. How are you? I am well, friend. How are you? The Amy Rahav Check. It's three it syllables. Rahav Check. Rahav Check. <laughs> I am so thrilled you do this. Oh, yeah? Why is that? Because you just have a lot to say to people. <laughs> you do. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There used to be a time where that was not such a, such a welcome thing, but or like you just got to create your own space <laughs> and do that. No, I'm excited to be here. I was just listening to the Sneeze episode. That was, um, it was exceptional. It's exceptional. And I've got my, my task, like the three things that you asked me to think about and be prepared for. So it's, I'm ready to go, Mark. <laughs> you know, you're about the conversations that are challenging and I have my own questions about those. Let's do it. I also like your personal story. You grew up, as many people did, with a father that sold. But a lot of us didn't hear a lot about work and selling from their father, but you had a different experience. For me, I was fortunate in that I was 
desensitized to the stigma of the word selling. Mm. Right. And if you want to take it a step further, listeners, my, I have two younger sisters. We're all 18 months apart. Like my parents swear they planned that, but I think like, I don't believe that for a second. That just seems insane to me. Three little children at four years old. But anyway, so we were raised at the kitchen table. Like my dad would ask us in grade school, Mark, when did you feel uncomfortable today? And the analogy that he used was butterflies, right? When did you feel butterflies in your stomach today? And, and we would go around the table and, and if we did not have an exact example of something that had happened that day where we felt uncomfortable, then there was like a, a loose association or depending on the day, sometimes it was a lot less more or a little more direct, but we were reminded that we, we, if we did not feel those butterflies that we, we hadn't grown. Um, and so that was a really interesting way to, to be raised. So that was the first part. But for me, I, I was going to be, a, I was on a different path. I was going to go into politics and not that I wanted to be a politician per se, but lobbyist, right? Believe, which is crazy. So I worked on like 12 campaigns um, before graduating high school. I mean, I, I organized a voter registration drive in, in high school before I was 18 myself. I won a model Congress competition in my senior year for tri-state, like speaker of the house, which paid for college, interestingly enough. But what my my problem or where where I ran into a, a roadblock was that I, um, I I was working on my first campaign official like it was a gubernatorial race in in New Jersey so this is the governor race and it was the primaries and our candidate sadly lost and so here I had spent I don't know maybe like five months at this point just like marrying this person's like you know platform and everything that he represents all the things that you're supposed to do or maybe not I don't know but I vividly remember the day that he lost and all of the my peers right so I was doing community organizing all of my peers they were they were packing their little box their desk up and everyone was essentially picking up their box and going to the competitors campaign right? Because it was in the primary. So it was the same ticket, right? As one went down, the other doubled in size. And I come to find out that this is what happened. This is how it went. And it was such a, it was very sad for me because maybe I was just young and idealistic, but I realized very, I, 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 I couldn't live that life. Like just switching allegiances like that. I just, and so now it's like, you're back to the drawing board and you turn to dad and it's like, what do I do now? what do I do now? And so we had a conversation about uh, like the learning to sell or pursuing that career path. And I speak on this of my show, Ben, he had this whole spiel about there's two types of workers, work producers, work processors, producers wait, wait, may way more, you got more flexibility, right? Those skills are transferable, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, mm, sign me up for that. And so, but to your original question though, it wasn't very hard or it didn't take very long to realize that the the dad daughter dynamic was, it just, it's, it's hard to be quite like, it's like, okay, dad, like he's been telling me what to do for my entire damn life. Like, and now I'm going to put myself into that situation. Like, uh, the, like by choice, <laughs> but what's interesting though, Mark, is you, your question aligns with something I've been thinking really deeply about. And that was for better or for worse, right? I was introduced to the profession with a tremendous amount of love. And the way that I was coached and taught, and it wasn't just me, right? My dad has a sales floor, right? I, I grew up in this training room and, and watching him and listening to these stories, but I grew up with a lot of love. And so when, what was hard for me entering into you know tech sales and then into sales enablement, it, I didn't realize at the time though, that most people didn't have that experience, but my reaction to the reality was it would, it made me angry. And so my way of dealing with this, like that I saw all around me and the harm that we do, cause we burn through people as a profession. It was to, to meet that frustration that I felt with anger. And so like, and not to say that I'm like, you know, banging on any doors or like, you know, calling people in the middle of the night. It's not like that, but I could do it. I could, you know, speak some truth to power with the best of them on LinkedIn. But so one of the newer aha moments for me is that how ridiculous that here I was taught to sell with love and I was meeting the current state with anger. And so I had, I went through like a pivot of like, okay, let's bring it, 
let's bring it back to love and introduce way more empathy, you know, for those that are even learning to manage and learning how to lead um, and, and doing so in a way that's different than what they experience. So anyway. The cutthroat world that exists in pockets, it's not everywhere, but in pockets that burns through salespeople and calls them failures when they haven't achieved this week's or this year's quote or something. Not calls them, but they fire them. Yeah. (laughs) There was somebody in a community today that was talking about how she missed two months and was going through like a medical thing. And they, she was floored that they, they fired her for that. And so I'm with you on the pockets and that there are absolutely shining star examples, but I think the numbers are about 80% of sales floors, specifically tech sales floors are really operating in a way that um, is not as great as it could be. And it's not as great for the sellers, but it's also, it's certainly not as great for the buyers either. And so I think it, it's an exciting statement. And I mean to convey hope because those that are stepping up, those that are, you know, looking at their sales process and introducing a new stage, you know, like really bringing it back to the drawing board and making those changes. Um, it's, it's easier to win. It's faster to win. And so I, I don't apologize for the hardness of the profession, but at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that the majority of people um, that are operating as a seller, specifically a tech seller, right? 80% again, um, are experiencing a less than ideal environment. Yeah. I had been a partner from, and I'll just say their name because it's a compliment, Oracle. And I assumed that at Oracle all over, it was cutthroat. You miss your projection a second time, goodbye. And, you know, said had seen even a little of that. But I interviewed one of the top, uh, area group vice presidents who'd been there his whole career and talked to him about leadership and then talked to his people about his leadership. And it turns out this joy that you try to bring to sales is actually more successful if you just give yourself about three years. You know, if you want to have the best results this year, then pound on your people, fire those that don't measure up. But if you want to succeed in three or four or five or 10 years in that role, you better behave a little more humanely and bring joy to selling. Does that make sense to you? It absolutely does. I'm a big fan of Oracle. And I, my, the last job that I had carrying a bag was Thomson Reuters, right? And so I, I talk about like experiencing a culture or a team as I, I use the red pill, blue pill analogy. And that it's when you, when you know what it feels like, when, when there's a layer of trust that extends over an organization and you, you're able to pause in a moment and, and think about the intent of maybe, maybe somebody on the team sends you a Slack quickly or, you know, it's, we, we tend to be less reactive and more, okay, how can I help this person and give someone a little bit of grace, really, because um, nobody's perfect. And so, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a fan of, of Oracle um, big time. So that, that doesn't surprise me at all. And it's, I, but I think it's important to, to still, though, to talk about these conversations. And I, I'm reminded, I think it was Bravado, and they, they did a compensation study. This was 100, they've got 100,000 in their community, mostly tech sellers. It's very Reddit-like, where it's a forum, it's like just mayhem in there in the best way possible. But their, their study, I think it was like 14% of, only 14% of sales floors have a team that hits like 75% of the reps on the team hit quota. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about that 14%, so first of all, like, well, but let's talk about the current state of the collective win rates on the team, right? And if it's anything under than at least 50%, like think about what you're, you're creating a culture that said like people are, our playbook is designed to, to lose most of the time. And so that's, that's not an ideal space to be. However, think about what it does to the psyche of the individuals to constantly be at that like 80, 75%. Um, And I, but I, you know, it just, it is what it is. Um, But more specifically, I think one of the best things that we can do and that we can talk about is how important it is to, to distance ourselves or to redefine what success is. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, we, if you're, were raised in like a Western society specifically, like the United States, um, success is based on an outcome. When I hit my number, when I get married, when I buy that house, when, when, when I have a baby, when, 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 and for, for us in this profession, that when 
And that, that never comes right. Even if you do hit your quarter or your month or whatever, like, what do you have a weekend to celebrate it? And then it starts all (laughs) over again. And so I'm with you on giving yourself the time and the space, the patience to like develop mastery with this craft. But I also think there's a lot that we can do as individuals to, to distance ourselves from that outcome and focus instead on the journey and specifically becoming a little bit better than yesterday's version of yourself. You know, what's great about that advice is that if you are a professional that ends up, whether you're writing code or you're picking up the phone to get people to buy your code, either way, if you are focused on doing it right each day and doing better each day, instead of a ghoul, just doing it better each day, if you do miss quota and you do get escorted to the next place, you're way better prepared to, to succeed there. But if you're just focused on doing whatever it takes to, to get the goal met, then that inevitable day, because you're talking about the, you know, the minorities succeed in most of the organizations, you're just not ready for the next one and you're gonna repeat, rinse and repeat. So it's great. I wanna ask you the second question about dad before we stray too far from him. So you, you talked about how you know, it, was, it was challenging, but then, uh, then it, you, you found a way to find the love in it. What was, what was professionally the big breakthrough idea that, that he passed on to you that, I know there's a thousand and it's unfair to say what was the one, but you know, let's try. What, what are one or two of the breakthrough ideas that he passed on to you? My, it's well, so you I'm with you. Like, they have it stopped. Like, I, I was talking to my dad this morning, and he listened to the, the episode that went live last night and like falling asleep. And he had ideas. He, I mean, he was talking to me about how I didn't understand. Like, there was one point where my guest said something, and I, I wasn't fully with the response. And so, I even quoted a dadism with that response. And so, like, there's it's still going on. Like, let's let's be serious about that. So the big ones. Um, okay. So some of the, it was definitely that early like work producer, work processor. So that initial decision to pursue sales, like that was massive. Um, don't quit before you give your results uh, time to come in. And similarly, <laughs> don't stop doing the front end activities that work once they do. Um, that was massive. Find common ground and move in that direction when I was learning how to establish a connection with tons of new people all the time. Um, I just told a story about one of my first breakthroughs on pushing through, like I, I, I was, it was a how to teach kids about money and I had put it out there to a bunch of moms groups and it was such a on fire idea. Um, and it took a while to get to this one. And there were a lot of fails on the path to that, but I, I it was such a good idea that as based on like the, the reception of this, that there were like eight scheduled within the first 30 minutes of sending this email to all these moms groups in New Jersey. And so, but it took me like six of them um, to be able to get somebody actually give me like a comment card with their contact information saying like, let's, let's take this a step further. And so that pushing through that, um, but frankly, the one that's like percolating in my head now and it, it was from back in the day and maybe I didn't do a good enough job um, internalizing it then because, you know, there's a big part of my story that involves a, an inpatient facility and me- of like mental health. And this is something I write and talk about. But like my dad's advice was don't uh, read your own press. Mm-hmm. And I have since learned a great deal about humility. And it's something that I try to incorporate into my day every morning. And so this is a big one right now. Like as you start to, um, you know, scale up again or whatever, but this is, this is the one that's on the, like, so even for anybody that's listening, that's a top performer in here, or maybe at the sitting pretty on the top of the leaders boards, and you got people asking you to come do podcasts or whatever, um, stay humble friends, stay humble and do yourself a favor. Do not read your own press. Just keep your head down and keep doing the right things um, and showing up the right way. And other people will speak of your successes for you, but don't don't be a douchebag. How does that advice fit now? It's it's one thing. Like so, I'm I'm working on I'm working with Andy Paul. This is great. It can help. Maybe this is too much detail on like whatever. But he did. We just it's his book, uh, Sell Without Selling Out. So I 
Andy, my first podcast episode was with Andy Paul. He had read that sales hacker article on mental health, the greatest competitive advantage you'll ever know. And he brought me in. He does these masterminds on like for aspiring sales authors. Um, and but anyway, so I've been working with him since the summer and prepping for the book launch that just went Feb 22nd. Um <laughs> And I'd never worked on a book launch. Like I, I didn't know shit about it. Plus we, he wanted to try this thing, like a launch team. And this is kind of a newer thing around selling books. And so like, but he had never done that, even though it was his third book launch. Um, and so it was a massive success. Like we, there's over a hundred Amazon reviews in like three weeks. Like the book went number one in the first week. It's still there. Number one in its new release for sales. Um, and the community. And so like, that's more what I mean, like looking at, it's like the, oh, there's only one number one. So it's like looking at that result in particular. And like another one, he did this, Andy did a beautiful post, like thanking everybody on like the core launch team, let's just say, and started with, uh, like, I got to thank my friend, Amy, like, but at the top and talking about a man who's got like, I don't know, 10, he's on track to do something crazy, like 12 million views on LinkedIn this year. It was 8 million last year. And so there's that, right. But I, I would, I, I, I feel like everybody that reaches out or I try to show up for the individuals that comment and, um, that message me, especially those that are carrying a bag. <laughs> those are my people. Oh, does that answer your question? Yeah. The very first conversation is with yourself. It's that moment in the morning and at night where I, I need to show up a little earlier than anyone would expect. And I need to stay not too late, not to blow up the family, but I need to stay a little longer than I feel like staying in whatever I'm doing that's uncomfortable. And that's a, that's probably the very first uncomfortable conversation we have each day. Tell me about that conversation and your be best insights about that conversation with yourself. <sighs> Yeah. Okay. So first and foremost, I agree with you, right? It is the most conversation or the most important, uncomfortable conversation that we need to have. And frankly, it needs to happen daily as far as I'm concerned. Um, what I will say is I think that there's a difference. It's like that, uh, um, busy, it's like the activity versus the effectiveness. I don't think an hour count, um, is a proximity for how well we're having hard conversations with ourselves. I think that there's certainly an iteration on, um, you know, becoming more essential honing. I love talking about Pareto's principle or the 80, 20 rule when, when sellers are just starting out, right. You're, you're going to get 80% of your results from 20% of your activities, your job, especially at the very beginning to identify what those 20 percenters are so that you can, you know, do a better job of making smart decisions about your time and your energy. And I, I personally am the type of person, like I have to close my computer by 6.30 or I, I don't sleep, right? Like I, I it, it's hard to turn my head off. But here's a perfect example of the hard conversation I had with myself this morning. So I woke up and I try to not touch the phone for at least like an hour, not, but it's, it's varying degrees of success, obviously. So this is like best case scenario. Um, but I was, I was, you know, loving on my dog this morning because her in the morning is my favorite. And then one of my friends was on LinkedIn and sent me a message about something and asking for time or whatever, we're going to book this time. And I, I did a voicemail, like a voice DM back to him saying that in this moment, I was thinking about working out and I would send him the Calendly link. Like once I got my day started and then I put the phone down, like get the LinkedIn away from me, whatever. But it was, I left him a funny message. Like this is a great, it was a great way to start the day. Cause he was hysterical. Um, but I realized that as those words came out of my mouth, thinking about working out how ridiculous they sounded. And so I stopped thinking about it and just did 15, 20 minutes. And now mind you, it's 25 degrees on the Jersey shore today. So this is why Ooh. I was thinking about it. It's like, I was getting my ass outside and running in the cold like that, that I didn't actually do that, but I did do like a circuit in my, in my house, but that's the type of thing, like just challenging the thoughts that you have and why you're having them. I love using journals. I, I I'm a big advocate of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most proven, the most effective form of therapy, because you get to work with a coach, a professional that will help you to kind of root out these limiting beliefs, and then also help you create routines to stay on track so that you don't need to see the therapist forever. Right. 
Um, and so that's a, just one example. And I would also, for anybody that's interested in digging into this, I just did an episode with this incredible human. Um, I think it was episode 45, uh, Andre Vicario on the opportunities are all around us. And so once we are able to silence that judgment, silence that I know that gremlin, um, be trustworthy to ourselves by, by pursuing things that we already told ourselves we wanted, you know, the discipline to whatever, get after that. Um, you're in, you're in a better, you're in a better spot. I loved his discussion about how he jumps in the pool. Uh, right. I did think most of us don't have a pool, but uh, he, you can he still also talked about the cold shower. <laughs> Yeah, you could still, but the principle of what he was saying is the that he, is it. he takes a, a really hard thing and he starts his day with it. And then it, it reframed and I, like running is a great example for me. Like I, I'm, I don't love running. Okay. I don't love exercising like some people do. However, I love the, well, first of all, it's really only hard at the beginning. Like once you, once you start, once you're out the door, like, so that the hardness evaporates from, you know, that first step on for me. Um, but more importantly, like you, there's, you bring a different energy to your day when you've done something hard like that at the beginning, hard stop. And so like, I, if anybody's listening, like, or does check out the Andre episode, this has nothing to do with which get like, um, which possessions that we have or whatever we can certainly as individuals identify, excuse me, I don't know if we can curse, we can identify a hard thing to do and do it first in the day. And that was, I believe the question I asked him was how do we cultivate discipline? Yeah. And so that's a great, a great place to start. I like the idea of, of taking just a few seconds to turn that shower cold <laughs> And wake yourself up and do something, get a little pain in your life that's that's harmless, and it wakes you up and it gets you ready to do the cold calling or it gets you ready to do the the, the uncomfortable discussion with one of you, a subordinate or someone or a client or something. Great advice. Okay, the, you know once we once we get ourselves going, then comes the second difficult conversation. The second difficult conversation trying to provide someone internal or selling is to try to get them to even have a conversation, to, to, to attract them into even having a conversation. So it's the reach out. And it's a, there's a million forms on social media, email, voicemail. Um, tell me about your best insights and advice on attracting that initial conversation with a live human being. And I love that you just used the word attract because I've got like the cover image. Where's my phone? Let me see if I can find it. You'll appreciate this. Um, this is my philosophy for selling. Do you see what that says? Don't chase, attract. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> so how do you do that? How do you do that? I think it's it's funny that you asked this because this has been on my mind a lot too. It's actually what I started season two with uh, Jeff or Outbound Done Right with uh, Jeff Swan. So we go deep into this one, but I, how do you do that? I think that there's the first step is to be aware that pro there's a great chance that how you were taught on how to do outbound is likely there's a lot of room for improvement there. Um, so that's the first thing, yes. <laughs> like getting out of the filter bubble of like, uh, like all the like nonsense. Number one, number two, I um, believe deeply in strategic outreach. And like, I also, I'm going to hate on, not hate on, but to get, push on cold calling a little bit, but I want to differentiate between cold calling and warm calling, right? Cold calling is calling someone that has, that you've done no research on. I've never interacted with, like it is pure cold. Like you might as well grab a phone book and just eeny, meeny, money mow it. That is cold calling. Um, warm calling still counts of calling people that you've never spoken to, but you just have taken the preliminary step of warming them up a little bit. I'm a fan of warm calling. I believe that when you get your process down to a point like you, it's everyone should walk away from an hour call blitz with two set meetings, right? So that's the, that's the bar. Okay. Now, how do you do that? I think that we need to do a far better job at being far, be, being more strategic with our target list. Um, and I, I just had, uh, Brandon, um, flew Hardy on the show who just wrote a book called seven steps to seven figures. And this is his second step was like, 
this, this, he goes into the, how he did this with his strategic accounts, but he reverse engineered it with coming up with character traits of the organization, six of them, and then like put mashed it against his territory and like the Venn diagram that, okay, so now you got your target list. Now it's a matter of thinking of how am I going to, um, I don't want to say break into the account, but I, for this, I love, if anybody's ever read, um, naked sales by Ashley Welsh and Justin Jones, it's all about design thinking and sales. And they start off a story about, um, it was a Salesforce rep that was trying to break into, I think it was uh, one of the bus companies, but they physically got on the bus as the customer and they kept detailed notes. And so it's like just being a customer and then going, having that context, those commercial insights to bring back to the organization. And you wouldn't believe how well those doors open when you've gone through that work. And, mm -hmm. and I want to connect the dots there to something that's important. And that is that, you know, there's a, there's a catch 22 on building the confidence to be able to reach out to executives of any kind. Right. And I think that's important. Right. I think that this is the greatest profession in the world when done properly. And, and we should all carry that AE or seller that's like stamp loud and proud as far as I'm concerned. Um, that said, that said, there's the other piece of that is that we need to work harder as individuals to elevate our own understanding of the industry, of the business acumen, of the financials, listen to the earnings calls, understand the budget cycle, you know, when it starts based on the calendar or the accounting calendar year, which is something that they make very easy to find for us friends. But anyway, we can also do those things. Um, well, better, a lot better in my, in my opinion and experience. I think it's right. And I think, you know, it's the old, the old saying that you start slow to finish fast. And uh, you think you're saving all this time by sending out 13,000 emails all at once that you don't know. And, and none of them really, you know, it's, it's not a 0.5% response. It's a 0% in this day and age because no one wants that. Nobody wants it. It's all yeah, digital pollution. Do you so, want to be responsible for that digital pollution listeners either? Like, no, it thank is, you. It's Mark, two yeah. quick things to that. So I did an episode. It was one that I started. It was with a young man that I was mentoring is an SDR. Dave Kong, Kong cracks the SDR talent code. And I go into my method deeply on how um, I approach outbound, but, but in the lens of having a conversation with someone that went from about to get like, like was in a bad way to, you know, 300% of plan and going on five on Friday and Francois calling him an, a prodigy. And so anyway, that's a great episode that, that breaks down that um, deeper too. Well, the other angle that I think of is that it, it, salespeople work so hard to achieve this and, and some of us do and some of us don't to try to, to strategize and think through and, and use our theory of mind on the other prospect and, and figure out what to say first and what the voicemail should sound like, et cetera. And you have to condense it into such a concise saying. It's interesting how in the middle of a mid-sized company, especially a large company, but it, at least even a mid-sized company, how ordinary workers like a CIO or a director of infrastructure or de development they are focused so much on their agile things and thing and process and projects. Sometimes when they have to reach outside their group to someone else inside the company, they could use this advice. Like before you bring all those assumptions and smarts into a meeting at a high level with other leaders, it's really important to do the, the four P's. You better figure out who those people are that surround the individual. You better figure out their work priority, their personal interest. You better figure out how you're going to provide value before you show up and cause a mess in a meeting. It doesn't look like a mess to them, but in the internal life of the other person with assumptions coming in and, and feeling attacked or things like that, whatever the context often is in mid-sized companies as you arrive into a meeting, even if it's benign and boring, those, those sales-like behaviors can help ordinary people. Um, the challenging conversation that often happens is you get the meeting and then you have to challenge that person to, with, with a balanced approach 
to create an epiphany. I mean, they have to realize that what they were doing is not good enough. So you're going to tell somebody enough. that you've so, never met that, or get them to understand that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> tell me about that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, that's the reality of the situation. I think that there's, since we're talking about tech sales, I think that there's a difference between the conversations that an SDR or BDR would have with than like an AE, which kind of burns me that we have this duplicative nature around a discovery conversation. But I'll pull from Jeff Bajoric actually came up with this brilliance um, on, on one of the conversations. He's a friend of mine and on my show. And the episode Jeff Bajoric does discovery, but he talks about, so if you're an SDR, the role of your of your like your job at that point is to un, like confirm that the business problem exists right that they have the right business problem okay and then obviously the ae is like we kind of go from there it's a little more explained or uh cut and dry now to the question how do you do that i mean i think the first thing that I would say to that is my goal when asking for a meeting or inside that meeting is like, all I'm trying to do is have a conversation, right? I'm trying to have a conversation with somebody to better understand what they're doing, how they're approaching the problem. Generally, I um, will toss out while I was selling, I would use like, you know, if you're interested in hearing how your peers are addressing this problem or some of the things that's working or not working, like, let me know, we can talk about that. If it's, if it makes sense to continue, great. If not, we part as friends, right? Worst case scenario. And so I reduce the fear associated with taking the meeting ahead of time, right? And I have this whole system about the agenda. I use voice DMs on LinkedIn the night before. I, I That wasn't a thing while I was selling, but I would absolutely be doing that now. And I have my version of that then. Um, inside the actual meeting, I think one thing that helped me tremendously, and it doesn't matter wh at what's like where the deal is at what stage or how many people are in the room, but I started incorporating um, at the beginning of the call. Okay. You know, my my only objective here during this call is to make sure that the time that you've chosen to invest with me is valuable for you. That said, right. And by the way, listeners, I'm and this is I'm pulling from Andy Paul's sell without selling out value, right? We overcomplicate this in sales. Like, let me help us all out. Value equals progress, right? When you're able to help the buyers make progress on whatever it is decision that they're trying to make whatever stage, right? There's a lot of mini decisions in there. As long as I can help them make progress, then it's a value to them. Okay. So that said, I'll straight up ask them at the beginning of the meeting, at the end of this 30 minutes, right? What would you need to know, or what would you need to find out in order to consider this time spent a success? And then they tell me. That's beautiful. Yeah. Progress. It's beautiful we don't get a long time to compete with our competitors. So tell me about the, the conversation to preempt that search or that thinking. How do you compete with competitors if, if you've now discovered that there is a need and you can fit it? Oh my gosh. I love, I can't believe I'm with the episode. I'm going to, let's go live tomorrow. Like we, I went into my system deep on this. And so I cannot believe you and I are right on the same page. Okay. So the first thing I think is important on all conversations with competition, right? Um, so I don't care if you're making a business case to invest in battle cards for your Salesforce instance, right? Hear me clearly, friends, the biggest competitor that we are all up against is the dreaded no decision. It is the status quo. It is the doing of nothing, right? And most opportunities, they stole out. They the, the buyers don't make any decision. And so I think that that's a really, really, really important frame to consider when, when thinking about competition, right? You want to compete against something, compete against their uh, natural inclination to do something and you'll be in far better shapes. Okay. Now that's it. Um, back to the real world. Um, all right. So I love this question. I, and frankly, I'm going to preface it by saying that I have, I think that one of the best things that a sales enablement team or a sales leadership team can do for their sellers is to give the sales floor an opportunity to participate in a buying motion, right? Think of all the tech tools, the sales tech tools that the team buys and they never, nobody ever pauses to stop and ask sellers like, Hmm, do we need this? Like, what are we solving for? Or like, anyway, but that said, when there's no other, there's no 
this is the best possible way to give someone the experience of how scary it is to shop features, to look at different tools, to understand that there's a, there's a sizable investment involved here. And what if we don't implement it properly? And what if people don't use it? Like think of all the buyer's remorse. And so that said, one of the ways that I was able to overcome this while selling was I would introduce it early into the conversation, right? And at the right moment, right? So you want to, you've established that connection, you've ex exhibited curiosity. Um, they, the buyer starts to feel understood, right? They feel the trust that, that you've created there. So you want to wait until you've earned it. Um, you could do so on one call, right? It's just, you gotta, that's where the mastery comes in. Just to be real about where you're currently at. But that said, I'll ask them, hey, are you, well, tell me about the shopping process, right? I'm, I'm just going to assume that you're, you guys are, are making um, steps or maybe doing smart decisions or want to make smart decisions. Where are you at in the shopping process? How? It's not who in this moment, it's how. How are you shopping? And generally, what I'm looking to do or what I'm listening for is whether or not they've created a, a feature tracker, like a spreadsheet of all the different companies and all the different features. And these, these trackers, when done right, they've got um, the buying team, right? Essentially looks at the features that they're shopping for and rates them, you know, these are high priority, right? This is must-haves, nice-to-haves or whatever. So three categories. Um, and almost always when I introduce this idea of a shopping tracker, they don't have one. <laughs> And so I was like, well, you should definitely do that, right? It'll just, if for no other reason, just to keep you organized, right? And being able to like, and then you can show your boss and people that are participating in the decision, how you're logicking through it, right? Just right off the bat. But you know what? Let me do one as solid. Like you don't have to create this from a dead stop. I have one with all the, the features of ours and of even some competitors are on there. So you don't have to, you know, reinvent the wheel. You can just take mine and, and make any adjustments that you need or want. Mm. And guess how that works out for me about 95% of the time. You win that. Wow, that's brilliant. So I, it, it leads right to my next question. So I'm just going to ask it. So how are you getting your differentiators into the bidding process for RFPs or, or even pitches? What You're just putting it in the document. You're just... You're just listing what you can do that no one else can do and some of the other strengths that are necessary to accomplish success. Is that what you're saying? Yes and no. Um, so I'm, I try to be real about the features that are on the sheet. However, the, top, the features that are at the top of the list are going to be the features where my product has the strongest performance, you know, or it was clearly identified that that was a big thing for them that came up in conversation. Um, but more specifically, so like even back to that word differentiation, I didn't think about it, Mark, on differentiating the product. I was more focused on their experience with me, mm. right? I wanted them to feel a different experience interacting with me. And that was the differentiation that won me deals more often than not. Interesting. And you especially really like, again, yeah, think about the, like the, the buyer's remorse, like 70% of tech purchases are, are implemented poorly. Like read some of these, these surveys and these, these reports on the buyer sentiment right now, they are, I've never seen anything like it. They are pissed. They're pissed. And so, and they have, they have cause to be pissed, right? Cause we've been treating them like transactions. We've been shoving these these human beings into the square peg, also known as our sales process and expecting them to move like uh, on how we want to sell our more, more specifically, how our boss wants us to sell their, like the product as opposed to how they're buying. And it's not even how they want to buy. It's how they're buying. <laughs> like we just haven't caught up yet. And so I play on that but like you're, it's gonna. We're, my job's not done until the business problem that we have spoken about and 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 talked about is solved, right? I sold information, right? So do and I was I had a bag where it was it was net new and also upsells clients, and so my job is not done until 
the business decisions that people are making off of the information that I sold, which was very, very pricey, very damn pricey, are better. And I had to be able to demonstrate that at scale. And so um, that's, that's how I brought that's what I brought into the buying motion. And I even, I liked using the speaking circuit, Mark, and to open opportunities, right? So one of my favorite ways to open opportunities is to go do a talk. And like, they would walk up to me after I stepped off stage and shake my hand and say, can I email you? And I would say, yes, please. But I wasn't up there by myself. I would bring one of my best buyers, one of my best customers, Mm -hmm. and that had implemented one of these crazy ideas that we like designed. And And I would point at this joint speaking circuit and use that to convey hope through the heart of the buying motion. When we come out on the other side, like then you're going to be like, what's it going to be like when you get to go teach your peers how to do all this stuff too? So again, I I was far more focused on differentiating the experience that they had with how I chose to sell operative void there being choose because it is your choice, friends. You probably were getting A pluses. But you know, most people that are doing that are getting A's, A minuses, and a lot of C's and B's. But Wait, are you talking about the speaking circuit? Yeah, the speaking. Oh yeah, it's nonsense. It's and they recognize you. They recognize that to to commercialize expertise is the whole second ninety percent. Like you know, to just know the stuff like the rest of the industry does is the first ten percent. But to get up there. Say it concisely and cleanly, powerfully. Be funny like you and engaging. I mean, the whole thing that 90% of the effort is beyond what the average person does. So you're setting yourself apart again as a differentiator by doing that, not just getting the word out. So I think it's beautiful. Okay, let's go back to the offices and Zooms of a normal sale for a second. We're on the short list. We're one of three. Tell us your just one or two big tips on closing. What are your insights? (laughs) I said, they used to call me the closer. Um, And it's funny because closing happens in discovery. And like, even just thinking about the frame, like like this concept of we're going to stop asking questions once we're out of the discovery period, like those, <laughs> those questions come through all the time. And so I, I think step one is to look at your process and look where things are stalling out, right? Where, where are they in the stage? And, and take legal as one example, um, contracting, or you could do security checklist for it or whatever. Um, I, so I sold into legal and so the, the redlining spiral or circle of doom, right? Just that goes crazy down. Um, and so one of the ways that I would control for that is instead of allowing that to happen, I would set up a kickoff call between our attorney and their attorney. And then listen to the attorneys banter about the clauses. So I neutralized that. Same thing with IT. Um, really get in front of it, right? And put the two humans together and like ask the hard questions. Okay, where is this gonna go down? I ask my executive sponsors early on, tell me about you know, uh, some of the purchases you did last year. What worked, what didn't? Where's the procure- procurement threshold? Like I was not surprised by anything, but also I was, I, I made no assumptions. I was absolutely allergic to assumptions. And I had a very intimate understanding of like, do you remember the telephone game from when we were kids? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Like you start yeah. a thing and then you somebody tells somebody and tells somebody and tells somebody like by the time it gets to the very end, um, like you can't even recognize the initial message anymore. And so I was very um, focused on making sure that that didn't happen. And so I think today you could do, you could use videos. Um, I back when I was selling, this was right after I was walking to the school, uh, uphill both ways in the snow without shoes. But like I was, I would write emails for people that were like after a meeting, we were sending them to the boss. Um, and then again, so hyper controlling the messaging. And then the last one that I will say is I wouldn't officially do Uh, like a deep dive demo until I had like three different executive sponsors engaged in the buying motion. Mm. And why I would do that is, and it was hard, right? Because one of them's really excited. Their team's really excited. I'm like, "Mm, no, we got to wait. Trust me. Like, trust me on this one. We're going to, we're going to find two more. Right. And so anyway, why that worked is because then you get everybody into the room together and think like 20 people, maybe it's remote. However, when you see three executive sponsors at a table and all their teams, like think of what happens to the naysayers in those instances. Yeah. (laughs) 
right? They experience like, mm, this maybe like, maybe I should pick my battles and maybe, maybe like, I, I can get be so smart this time. Right? <laughs> like, look at all the people that are excited about this. And so I use that environment and that social proof to just kind of keep people um, in check a little bit. And I'm talking about those that would derail my deal for my buying team. Um, so there's that. But then the other piece of it is think about it from the budgeting perspective right? I dropped the number early. I'm a big person on that. I'm not, I got nothing to hide. And I'll drop the full number to each of those three executive sponsors. And so then when you come to the end of the motion, um, even if or when one of those executive sponsors ends up dropping out, right? Think of the risk that I am by diversifying, like nobody's, nobody's going to be the only neck on the chopping block when this purchase goes down, right? So having you know, customer success in marketing and sales all at the table, let's say for some kind of revenue tech tool, just as one example. Um, so that was a big piece of it. But also each of those heads of teams has this one number in their mind. And it's very often where people forget to divide it by three. Mm. And so right at the end, when it comes down to like, you know, asking for the deal like that, that was a piece of it. Like here they were thinking it was a number, but now since I had pushed through and brought in, I taught them how to collaborate, right? I taught them how to listen for use cases or business needs again in an adjacent manner or, or ubiquitously is another way people describe using tools. Um, and so that's a thing. And then of course, with the trials, like I liked free trials, I don't have a problem with them, but also I was pretty explicit, like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. Tell me what a successful trial equals. Let's put it on this piece of paper. Okay. And then when, how are we going to measure that success? Pick one success metric. Here's three to choose from. Okay, good. This thing. And then when this happens at the end of the trial, will you buy yes or no? And I would like make a joke of this and I would put it on like a piece of paper and like slide it to them and ask them to sign it. Um, and so there was never any ambiguity on like the time spent on, on trials either. Hmm. So between those three things, it was a, oh, and then I was very specific on not only who I was doing opportunities with motions, um, but when to start them. Mm -hmm. Beautiful answers, beautiful advice. Um, okay, let me let me ask you about referrals and getting references. And okay. there's a continuum. There's a whole program that people should have. It's the number one source of revenue, but companies don't even have a process for that. But we have this big process and invest in the whole thing. What's your advice on building references, getting referrals? I love that you asked this. This is such a money question. Um, okay. So when I was, my dad, right, financial services, I averaged eight referrals per discovery meeting. Okay. I did not need the yes to <laughs> ask. Discovery. <laughs> yeah. Like, the, but again, like you create an experience like that, you give someone an opportunity to feel seen, validated and understood. Like, they want to give that experience to others, um, but it's nerve wracking, right? But even more so like, so if I spent time on an opportunity and I did not get the deal, um, you better believe I was getting at least five referrals from that time invested wow. in that. What did you say? Well, but for starters, like think about the experiences that I've created for my buyers, right? When I had a, there was a buyer that like, he was a police department. It was in Mountain View. I was a, a next request and like tried to get me to come become a police officer. Like, you know, you're on track when your, your clients try to recruit you. Okay? And I don't, I don't like for friends, anybody listening, like you, you don't see me and think there's a woman with the future in law enforcement. Like that's, it's not how it goes, but anyway, okay. So back to the referrals. I, um, I had a lot of belief in the experience that I gave to people buying, like, and so I felt confident and in asking for them. That's the first thing. The second thing is keeping in mind, the answer is always no, unless you ask. And so if you have never, not once attempted to ask for a referral at any point, I would venture to say that's a good place to start. 
try something, try somewhere. Um, it doesn't have to be like a, okay, the deal's done now. Like let's, let's have a formal conversation so that you can give me the names of all your friends so I can go sell them too. No, it's like, I'm feeding, like, even when I was approaching discovery, and this is a little more relevant as you move up into strategic or enterprise, but I was constantly asking who else in the organization is having this, is having an issue with this business problem. Who else do you know? Who else do you know? Who else do you know? So it was a very normal thing um, throughout the, the motion to be exchanging names. And also that as a person gave me a name, like even internally, I would go work with that peer, go work with that person or set up a meeting. And I did not make the person who gave me that name look bad. In fact, I'm so delicate on this front. Like when somebody gives me a name, I'll even toss it back to them. Like, do would you like to reach out to them and do the introduction? Or would you prefer that I do that and just use your name? Mind you, I would only ask that question after I have the referral in my hands. Yeah. However, that alternate choice closed there, it's like a, it's a money thing. And so they've gone through the experience of I've, I've had conversations with people that they know already. Mm. Those people have been brought into the buying motion and it's been a positive experience. So the amount of faith and trust that that person has in me, when they give me the names of their friends at other companies, um, or, and, you know, and I've had used to have some trigger questions, like, do you go to any conferences or do you like when, I, I liked looking for my influencers or the people with pull power. So I would, I was always looking for interest, like directly to the top that that person could just say, oh, this tool or like, go do this thing like that, whatever. And so I would, I would get those trigger questions ready. Who do you know that blank that despises Salesforce? If you're selling something, a CRM against Salesforce or whatever. Um, and then try friends, try. Awesome. Okay. Last two questions and then I'll let you go. Um, I, I'm going to put these together because um, so, they're contrasting. Okay. So we spent a lot of time doing relationship in, in its very detailed fashions that we've discussed. I mean, it's not just about being positive about each other. It's all these intricacies of human interaction I'm talking about. So we've done all these things, but at some point in that process, it's time for, your, for a pure pitch. And it's making the logical case. In contrast to that, the entire time we're trying to build an emotional consensus, not just broaden it like you say, but get the emotion <laughs> swinging broadly. Uh, tell me about making the best pitch and the long-term emotional consensus. So what I would say to that second part of the question, the emotional consensus is that this is real life, right? There are, emo we are human beings and we all have emotions regardless of your gender, right? So none of this like, oh, it's a female trait. And so this, the more that we recognize that this is already happening, right? People have emotions. When, when you're introducing something that's new or different or change of any kind, there's fear. Um, people want to look good in front of their boss. And so there's nerves about that. There's generally the legacy, like who purchased, who made the decision to purchase the product I'm replacing. So that's going to be something I'm going to find out. I'm not going to step on that landmine, like when I'm dancing around an organization. And so like, these are all things this is just how it goes. And so you don't necessarily need to create any emotions or uh, it's just recognizing them for what they are. Mm -hmm. And I think a big piece of this is, it's something I've been thinking about recently. It's like this concept of trust, right? The reality of our situation right now in our society and like what we're coming out of with COVID and like all the workplace stuff about, you know, remote or whatever is our baseline is not like a blank sheet of paper. The baseline that you're up against is mistrust, yeah. especially as a salesperson, especially yeah. as a salesperson. So being aware and recognizing that that's, that's, that's the, that's what it is, right? the priority is a factor. If you're not the top priority, the default time is later, right? Exactly, and I don't mind that, right? If you are struggling, like trying to get your opportunities, listeners to start right now, go get some more 
and opportunities in your pipeline. Stop looking or waiting for your SDRs to do it for you. If you're lucky enough to be in a situation where you're doing that, do not rush the buyers to start. That's going to be a harder opportunity for you. Go find and go create or attract enough of them to um, allow you the time and the space to start the right ones when the buyer and the buying team is ready. Okay. But anyway, so the emotions, I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One is uh, nobody likes surprises, especially bad surprises. And so um, as I am discovering or multi-threading through an organization, I'm constantly looking for the risk spots, right? To try to, to neutralize them. All right. This is why I ask about procurement. This is why I ask about legal. This is why I ask about IT. This is why I ask about the other opportunities or the other tech that they bought last year, right? Or what worked, what didn't. Um, and so again, I don't, I'm trying to minimize the bad surprises. Another one, bad news doesn't get better with time. Right. And so when something happens, instead of um, dancing around it or uh, waiting too long to give someone the transparency around whatever bad thing happened, because they will happen, uh, just lean into them. And that will, um, it, it creates a great deal of trust with the individual. Right. They'll start to see you as someone that is not afraid of the when things go wrong. And so they, they trust you to guide them through the buying process. And I think another thing um, that's important is to keep the, keep the, the relationship with the buying team, right? Think about working with your peers, right? We're humans, it's messy. And so like, keep that in mind. And as I like to remind people right now that we all deserve grace, right? And so when you're, when you're working with someone and they're talking about their peers or so-and-so did something like reintroducing this idea of grace and objectivity um, back into conversations. And it, that I found went really far in helping someone to check themselves um, around how they were thinking about the, the conversation. I'm big on project management. And so I use visuals around like Gantt charts, right? Timelines. I give people, so this is back to that predictability thing. Like people know what's coming. They know what steps that I'm doing at each stage and why we're doing it. And so all that goes really far. Um, and then the last, mm, I think that's plenty. So <laughs> <laughs> hopefully that was enough for us. I want to tell you what I'm grateful to you about, and uh, I'm sure this is not surprising to you. You have so much how-to on your show, and you have so much how-to in your mind, and you've proven it in fin, you know, fintech and finance selling. But but, but I I got to tell you, in in re researching you this morning, I was just lifted. And back to our, the beginning of our conversation, if if you don't get up and do something. Nothing else really matters. And we were built to get up and pursue something. And, and a lot of us, I don't know if it's modernism or what, what has happened, but a lot of us have a hard time getting up and heading towards the target. And uh, I'm just grateful for people like you that have energy and you're funny and you're engaging and, and you're bringing joy, and it, I think it is a really important second aspect to what you do, and it means your success, actually. So thank you. Well, thank you for saying so, and I receive all those um, beautiful words, and I loved hearing that about the how. And so, listeners, I don't have shit figured out. I'm on a journey just like everybody else, <laughs> yeah. and like like I'd shared this more, like it's, I was all prepared to talk about like the bold breakthroughs that are, that I'm working, like the challenges that I'm having right now. And so what I would share is that, you know, don't, don't compare your current state against what you see right now. Or if you want to even more like, listen to my show, I am in, I am not shy about the mistakes, but that's all I would say is don't, don't, don't allow the distance between us to, again, prevent you from trying. So that's the first thing. And I mess up all the time. Make no mistake about that. Um, and, and Mark, I, I also received the piece about the how, like, I, I loved that you made this very actionable. And so I've been really very intentional, frankly, about incorporating more of the how to, um, into a lot of what I'm doing. And frankly, like you said, you were biased on the motivation. I've been biased on like, 
I've been selling, I've been teaching people how to sell for a long time, like over a thousand reps and like built out two sales enablement departments. And in many ways, like I've been joking that like, I'm, I, I don't want to say I'm bored of it, which is nonsense, but I was wrong. Right. And so trying to pull that back in. And so to hear you say that you feel and, and see and appreciate the how, and so much so that you made this episode about it. Like I, I received that in a really big way and, and it's, it's, it's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. you. Bet. Okay. Before you tune out, uh, some people won't watch and some people won't go to the show notes. So say your name again and spell it slowly. <laughs> it's Amy Ruhovchak. You can find me on LinkedIn um, or you can run a search for my show, Revenue Real Hotline too. But my name is spelled A-M-Y-H-R-E-H-O-V as in Victor, C-I-K. And a search on, on LinkedIn should pop me up. There's there's only one of me. And I'm also at amy at revenuereal.com. So feel free to email me there too. Amy Rahavchak. I'm still getting closer. I'll keep working on it. That was good. Thank that was good. So I'll much. take it. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me, Mark. And thank you for listening, listeners, through the remainder of the conversation. It means a lot. It was great meeting you all. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you enjoyed it, please share this episode with a friend that needs a breakthrough. Post this on social media and add my website or tag my YouTube page. Or just text markspencercook.com to a friend or message that link on Instagram right now. Also, make sure to subscribe on my site at markspencercook.com to stay up to date on all the latest advice on how to unstick priorities to create breakthroughs. I'm so grateful that you listened today. And remember, you have people rooting for you. They love you and want you to make your breakthrough. That includes us too. Take the first step. Now, you know what time it is. It's time to go create a breakthrough for your work in life. And we'll see you there.